The notes are in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text for this morning is written on the back of the notes. And we will continue working our way through the end of Luke 21, what is known in other places as the Olivet Discourse, um, Jesus, Jesus' clearest, fullest teaching in Luke on the end times and the events that accompany them. Um, it'll take us four Sundays to get through this. This is only our second. But I'd like to begin by reading Luke 21, 5 through 38 in its entirety. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Luke 21, 5 through 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of them... Some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter in. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption Is drawing near. We told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a challenging and fearful passage. And in it, your son declares from the beginning the end. And what is predicted is fearful and difficult persecutions and sufferings and trials and death. And yet there are great promises for us to cling to here. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us receive your word and be instructed by it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we work our way through this section of Luke's gospel, I want you to pay attention to some of the markers Jesus begins this section by predicting, quite accurately, the absolute destruction of the temple. This leads his audience to ask him when that will happen and what will be the signs of his coming because they connect the destruction of the temple with the siege of Jerusalem and the return of the Messiah, as that's laid out in Zechariah 12 and 14. And so last week we saw signs that generally accompany this period. This week, we're looking at things that happened even before. Look at verse 20. Uh, not, sorry, not verse 20. Look at verse 12. But before all this, the next Sunday, we'll pick it up in verse 20. But when, actually now jumping ahead to the events that are immediately before the return of the Lord. So this week, what we're looking at is, is not the events that immediately herald the Lord's return, but rather the events that typify this age that we are in, this time that we are in. These are the things that happened before. Consequently, they, they describe the days we live in. This is very practical for us. You'll notice that phrase, for which I titled the message, for his name's sake, occurs twice in our text. Once in verse 12. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Then in verse 17, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And so this, this passage, these few verses, describes the fate and what those who live for the sake of Christ's name should expect as their part and parcel in this life. We're going to look at it in five points. The first, verses 12 through 13, general persecution. General persecution. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and the prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now remember, this crowd of people is expecting Jesus to overthrow the Romans. We saw as he was entering into Jerusalem, leaving Jericho, that they expected the kingdom to appear immediately. So this message that Jesus is giving them is hard for them to hear. They're caught up in glory and greatness. Look at chapter 22, even the 12. Chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
Even the disciples are caught up in glory and honor. And that will come even in our passage that we've looked at. We see the kingdom will come. It's not that there is no kingdom. But first, there is a cross before the crown. First, there is a time of suffering and persecution. And this is hard for them to hear. It's hard for us to hear. This is point A, the timing. These things take place before before his return, before the cosmic signs. These are the events that take place in the era we live. And in one respect, this passage perfectly summarizes the book of Acts. And it might be tempting for us to think, and we may even want to think, this only describes the book of Acts. We've moved on from that, but that, that is not true. This describes the age we live in. There will be general persecution of those who hold the Christ's name. And notice the source of the persecution. They'll lay hands on you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors. What we're seeing is both Jewish and Gentile in its origin. If they're bringing you before synagogues, that's Jewish, and before governors and prisons, now we're dealing with the Gentiles. And again, this is exactly what the book of Acts unfolds. Let me read to you a quote from Edwards. What was the history of the fledgling Christian movement, if not a litany of trials before kings and governors? Jesus was hailed before Antipas and Pilate, Peter, John, and Stephen before the Sanhedrin, James before Herod Agrippa, Paul before Gallio, Felix, and Agrippa and Festus. In every instance, the offense was not a malefaction, but due to bearing witness to the name of Christ. Remarkably, such opposition and adversity does not weaken the church, but provides an opportunity for testimony and witness." That is exactly what Luke will record in his sequel to this gospel, the book of Acts. And Jesus is predicting this is the general truism. And again, it's tempting for us to think, well, yes, that was true for them, but not for us. The only reason I think we're tempted to say that is because of God's grace and our sheltering. I was looking this morning on Voice of the Martyrs. You can go online, look that up. They estimate that there are today more Christians in prison, more Christians being persecuted, more Christians being killed than at any time in the history of the church. But we don't see it in front of our eyes. It's not what we experience. It's not what our parents experience. And so we forget these things. We would do well to hear Jesus' words. These are generally, remember, he's speaking to the people. He's not even just speaking to the twelve. But to any of those in this crowd of disciples and people who would claim the name of Christ and faithfulness to it, this is what they, this is what we should expect. And if this isn't what we receive, let us be thankful, but let us not be shocked or surprised when it happens from both Jews and Gentiles alike, which also means religious persecution as well as state persecution. The early church got it from every angle. And you can just read through the, the book of Acts. I gave some of those references there and see the literal fulfillment of this prediction by our Lord. But I also want you to notice the cause. It's not because they'll be jerks, but for the sake of Christ's name. And so when we as Christians suffer, we want to make sure that we're suffering for the right reasons. We can suffer for being jerks. Um, we, we can suffer for being unloving and unkind. And when that happens, this is not what Christ is talking about. No, this is for the sake of the name of Christ. 
But if you hold faithfully to Christ's name, you should expect this persecution. You shouldn't be surprised that when your neighbors, when your coworkers learn that you are one who holds to his name, you are one who claims Christ as Lord, that there will be some negative response. That's exactly what is predicted here. Jesus has been predicting this through Luke's gospel. In fact, in many respects, um, this, this passage that we're looking at this morning is, is really just tying together and repeating themes already said. There's very little new here in Luke's gospel. And I want you to notice also that what we view as something terrible, what we view as something um, fearful, and it is, is used by God for good purpose. Here we see the sovereignty of God uniting with human responsibility and even sin because the very thing that the world will do to try to crush the gospel, that will try to attack those who bear the name of Christ, Jesus says this will be your opportunity to bear witness as an opportunity for witness. In fact, the early church is, is full of this. The word for witness, interestingly, is the word marturo. We get the word martyr from it. Because over time, the, the word took on a more specialized meaning, not just one who bore witness, but witnessed faithfully unto death. Voice of the martyrs, voice of the witnesses. And so even though this thing is persecution is fearful. I'm not, I'm not trying to lighten that or make it seem as if it's a light thing. It is not. Yet even this great evil is used for good as an opportunity for witness. The Lord is telling them one of the reasons why he will delay in returning is so that his church might bear witness to the world to the name of Christ. That's the first thing to expect, general persecution. But in response to this challenging message, challenging for them, challenging for us, there's a promise of divine provision. Promise of divine provision. He gives an instruction in verse 14 and then a ground, a reason for that instruction in verse 15. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So what's the command? It's this. Determine not to plan your defense. There's tremendous freedom in what Jesus gives here. He just told them that they should expect, we should expect to be dragged before courts and governors and rulers and other religious councils as an opportunity to give witness for the name of Christ and here he says, I don't, I don't want you planning your defense. Literally, the, the, the Greek is to place it in your heart. It's a Hebrewism, which has already occurred in Luke's gospel. Listen to Luke 9, 44, when Jesus said, let these words sink into your ears. Literally, it's place this in your heart. And it speaks of a, a determined, committed resolution. Place this in your heart. Get it, your head wrapped around this. That Jesus is saying he himself, he himself will give the wisdom and the words needed. Jesus promises that in that hour to supply both wisdom and words. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. And that is a wonderful promise. If you are faithful and hold to Christ's name, and if you, because of that, and this promise, again, relates to suffering for the sake of the name of Christ, not suffering because of your poor performance at work or suffering because you're kind of a 
jerk. This is suffering for the sake of Christ's name. But if you are, and if people demand of you an account, if you get an opportunity to give witness, Christ himself promises wisdom and words that you might know what to say, how to say it, you might be able to think through these things. That combination of, of words and wisdom, a mouth and wisdom, actually links back to, you remember Moses? When God told him he was going to go before Pharaoh and Moses was fearful and he says, I can't speak. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So Jesus is promising his followers that if they will be faithful to him, he will be faithful to them. If they will faithfully hold to his name, when the time comes, he will give them words to speak. Keep keep your finger here. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 6. And not only will he give us these words, point two, these words will be irrefutable. And we we get this exact... Thing happening in the book of Acts. We see it with our own eyes. Remember Stephen. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it is called, and of the Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and those who from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Jesus promised it's exactly what happened. And through all of chapter 7, Stephen gives his defense. He gives the history of Israel. Look at verse 51 of chapter 7 as he summarizes his teaching. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, and they are completely unable to refute or respond. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus said, in that hour, I'll give you the wisdom, I'll give you the words. There's Jesus keeping his promise. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. His, what he is saying is so powerful, so irrefutable. Their only option is to stop their ears and put him to death. Because there's nothing to say to this type of wisdom. He didn't have his, his sermon notes ready to go. By the way, this is, again, only for person. I can't use this on a Sunday morning, you know. Um, it's a wonderful promise. You might think, what would I ever say? What would I ever do? And Jesus is faithful to his word. He just calls on us to be faithful to him. This wonderful provision we don't need to worry. We don't need to plan our defense. That if we are suffering for the sake of Christ, if we are called to give an account for our faith, if, if we have an opportunity to bear witness to his name, he will give us wisdom. He will give us words. He will give it power. It will be irrefutable. Interestingly, in, in Paul, when he's in prison, prays 
that the Ephesian church would pray that God would give him wisdom and words. Listen to Ephesians 6.19. Also for me, pray for me that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Because when God supplies the words, his word does not return void. When God supplies the words, it accomplishes what he wishes it to accomplish. And again and again through the book of Acts and through church history, it is Christians faithfully, not recanting, not denying Christ. It, yes, brings suffering and brings persecution, but brings them their opportunity to witness. Go to Acts 27. I mean, it's remarkable. As the Apostle Paul stands firm, the, the opportunities that he gets to speak And again, we see the wisdom of God, actually Acts 26, the wisdom of God in using such means. We, we wouldn't choose to, mean, to use the means of suffering and persecution to advance the gospel, but it's exactly what God uses. And all of chapter 26 really is Paul being able to give his testimony of his conversion, of Christ's faithfulness before King Agrippa. So King Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And from verse 2 all the way through verse 29 is the Apostle Paul giving his opportunity to witness. And God providing the wisdom and the words and the strength. What Jesus predicted is absolutely perfectly fulfilled in the book of Acts. And today as well. This wasn't just a promise for back then. These are the things that happened before his return. That's the time we're living in. And so on the one hand, there'll be persecution. On the other hand, there'll be our opportunity for witness. And he promises the provision of both the wisdom and the words and the power to stand. Well, things go from bad to worse after we, the general persecution and the promise for divine provision. Now we move to universal persecution in verses 16 through 17. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Notice both the intensity and the breadth of persecution. The intensity, first, that loyalty to Christ will divide intimate bonds. Loyalty to Christ will divide intimate bonds. You'll be delivered up even by parents. I mean, I mean think about that. The parent-child commitment is a, is a tight, strong commitment. And yet, the gospel and fidelity to Christ can come in between that. And hatred for Christ can come in between that. And again, we've seen this on both sides of the matter. Jesus is teaching. They tell him, teacher, your, your mother and your brothers are here. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? But he who does the will of God. So Jesus recognizes a closer affinity for the church, for his people, than he does even for his own flesh and blood. And likewise, he calls on us and he warns his would-be followers in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes after me, does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus understands that the commitment of loyalty he's looking for He's requiring of us trumps familial bonds. We're told on the other side that the world's hatred for Christ 
will likewise trump familial bonds. And these most intimate of relationships, parent and child, relatives, close friends, will be severed by the sake of the name of Christ. So make, make no mistakes, we can't sort of be in, in, in both camps. These are absolute lines of division. On the one hand is Christ saying, look, if you want to come after me, your loyalty to me is absolute. Your commitment to me is absolute. On the other side, the world says, we don't care if you're our children. We don't care if you're our spouses. If you name the name of Christ, we will hand you over. There is no middle ground. And we fool ourselves if we think there is. We need to decide which team we're on. We need to decide where we'll put our faith and trust in. Make no mistake, loyalty to Christ will divide intimate bonds. Jesus said something very similar to this. In Luke, turn, turn to Luke 12. Turn to Luke 12. What he says here, he has said before in Luke. I just think when we read these things, we don't think he's serious. Now, surely he doesn't mean that. And he says it, and he says it again, and he says it again. Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you who to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of men will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you should say. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jump ahead a little further to verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is no new teaching. And I just want you to pause and consider that Jesus actually means what he says. And you may find yourself in situations where loyalty to Christ will be perceived as hatred to your closest family members. I've talked to people who, refusing to go to a wedding... Things like that are perceived as hatred. And I'm not saying those are easy things. But Jesus was right up in front, clear, repeatedly, that that was what he required and expected of his followers. Which doesn't mean it makes it easy, but let there be no shock or surprise. Surely he can't ask that. He, he is, there's no baiting and switching with Jesus. It's one of the things I love about our Lord. He does not bait and switch. He's clear and up front. 
And he's telling his disciples, look, the reverse is true as well. Once they get a whiff of what you're about, once they understand where your loyalty lies, even your parents, even your close friends will turn you over. And some of them, he says, they will kill. Loyalty to Christ will at times lead to death. Loyalty to Christ will at times lead to death. I don't think I did the blanks for B. Loyalty to Christ will be bring hatred by all. So we see the intensity, the family bonds, and now it's just breath, everyone. I mean, there are two teams in the universe. There are sons of God, those who are in Christ, and sons of the devil. There are those who know the Father through faith in the Son. There are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, who are clothed in his righteousness, and there is everyone else. And just as God told the woman that there would be enmity between her seed and the serpent's seed. That's what we see here. And you can't be Switzerland. You can't claim neutrality. You can't. And the, the, the temptation for us is for a while, in a very unusual providence of God, for a while, the last few generations in this country, there seemed to be a general ceasefire and peace with the world. That's starting to stir up again. We're starting to see some of that Oh, you believe that? You're a bigot. You believe that? You're awful. Okay, that's the norm. Now, I am thankful that there's been some peace. I'm thankful that there has been a, a relenting of suffering in the body of Christ. But let us not be surprised. This is what we're told to expect. This is what will happen. Let us count the cost. Let us look it square in the eyes. And trust that God promises the grace to get through it. But it may well lead to death. Some of you, they will kill. And again, book of Acts, church history is full of that. They stoned Stephen to death. God gave him words and a wisdom that they could not refute. But that didn't lead them to repent and convert. It just led them to pick up stones. We can't refute you, but we can silence you. And again and again, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. With no military power, without um, powerful you know, cultural figures, the church grew and grew and grew even as Rome and the Jews tried to stamp it out. Universal persecution, which leads to another promise. Point four now, total preservation. And this may seem like a strange promise based on what he just said. Some of you, they will put to death... You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. That, that seems strange. I mean, you almost want to say, well, which one is it? Will, will we be put to death, or will not a hair of our head perish? The answer is yes. See, Jesus promises complete protection. That phrase, not a hair, first used in 1 Samuel, speaks of total wholeness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to um, the, the captain of the ship. Remember, he's put on a ship, he's taken to Rome, and the ship founders, and, and the Apostle Paul is, is given a word by God of how everyone can be saved. And he says this in Acts chapter, uh, where is the verse? Oh, I didn't write it down. He promises the guard that if they will follow his instructions, everyone will survive. And that, Acts 27, 34... 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. What he's saying is every one of you is going to survive this. So, so how do we make sense of this promise? Not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will put to death. Well, some have tried to argue that he's simply speaking to the other group, which really is kind of a very uninspired thing to say. Some of you will be killed, and some of you won't be killed. I mean, that, that in essence would be what some people would suggest Jesus is saying. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it's like, duh. <laughs> if you're not put to death, you're, you're not put to death. No, what, he, what he's saying is there's nothing man can do to you that can ultimately harm you. This ties in with the logic of Luke 12 we saw before. Do not fear him who can kill the body and after have nothing more they can do. So all they can do is just kill your body. And you say, well, yeah, but that's terrifying. Fair enough, there's something more terrifying. Falling into the hands of the living God as his enemy. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Who are of more value than many sparrows? So how can we make sense of this promise that some of you will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish? Point B is here is this. The promise of the resurrection makes this possible. They can... They can Flog you, they can kill you, they can behead you. You can read through the book of Acts, you can read through Fox's book of martyrs, you can read all the terrible ways Christians have been martyred. Yet every single one of them will be resurrected whole. No more bruises, no more scars, not a single hair out of place. It's, it's life, and in the scope of eternity, it's a matter of little importance. I know it's easy to say, but... but the whole reason he's telling them this beforehand is to fix it in their minds so that when it does come, we can remind ourselves of this truth. There is nothing they can do to us that has any permanent eternal consequence. There's nothing man can do to you or to me that's going to pass through into the resurrection. Every hair on our head is numbered and we are precious in God's sight and his eyes. And so Jesus gives us this freeing promise to remind us that we have life in him, and a life that will not perish, and there's nothing that can be done to a follower of Christ that has any permanent consequence. Which then brings us to our responsibility, point five, necessary perseverance. Necessary perseverance. Perseverance. Now, the ESV translates this last verse, verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And what are we to make of that? I'll read a quote from John MacArthur. Some have interpreted the Lord's concluding statement, by your endurance, you will gain your lives, as a reference to physical survival. That, however, reduces it to a meaningless tautology, saying, in effect, that those who do not die will not die. What Jesus was actually pointing out is that those who trust in Christ endure to the end, so that they do not fall away. 
They thus prove that their faith is the authentic gift of God. Such will receive the final aspect of salvation, glorification, and live forever in the joy of God's glorious kingdom. I think it might be helpful to help understand what he means here when he says you will gain your lives by your endurance. By the way, that word for endurance is a Greek compound word, hupomone, meno, to remain, hupo, under, to remain under. The picture is being under something heavy, difficult, painful, and you're abiding, you're remaining there, you're enduring. And in the context, it's the endurance of this persecution, it's the endurance of this betrayal. And Jesus, after all, is betrayed by his close friend, his disciple Judas, abiding, persevering, under that trial, under being handed over and put into jails, you will gain your lives. Turn, turn back to Luke 9. We'll see a similar saying that I think might help clarify what he's saying. Because that word for life in Greek can also be translated as your soul or yourself. Because again, there's nothing new here that Jesus is saying. There's nothing new here that Jesus is saying. Point A We'll see here in Luke 9. If we would save our lives, we will lose them. It's that logic from Luke 9, starting in verse 23. Notice again, this is a general saying. He said to all, that's pretty broad, if anyone, that's pretty broad, comes after me, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And that's the same word we just saw at the end of verse 19. You will gain your lives. And that's what he's talking about. It's the same context he's talking about. Through their endurance, they will attain to the resurrection. Through their endurance, they will gain what is really life. Let's go back to Luke 21, and see if we can make some sense of this in the few minutes we have remaining. So the first point, if we would save our lives, we will lose them. Conversely, if we endure and abide and remain through this difficulty, we will gain our souls or salvation. The New King James actually translates this souls. Well, that's, that's challenging. I thought we're saved by grace, now we're abiding. Here, here's the logic. Genuine faith ultimately perseveres. Genuine faith ultimately perseveres. And that's not to say there won't be lapses. I'm sure some of the sharper ones of you are already thinking, yeah, but just two chapters later, Peter. Peter is going to deny Jesus. He's, he's going to back down. He's going to be dragged before a servant girl. And he's going to be scared of a servant girl. And he's going to say, I do not know the man. Admittedly. This isn't to say that our faith will not have lapses. Notice the way I phrase this. Genuine faith ultimately perseveres. Ultimately perseveres. Go to Luke 22. See, it's the difference between a Peter and a Judas. Two men in the same night horribly betray, deny their Lord, right? One of them hangs himself and goes straight to hell. The other goes on to write two books of the New Testament and lead the early church. What makes the difference? How do you account for that? Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Notice, Satan has to get permission. 
to test and tempt God's saints. Because God is sovereign. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But but his faith is going to fail, Jesus. Not ultimately. And when you have turned again, when you've gotten back up on your feet, strengthen your brothers. See, Peter will deny Christ. He'll be sifted. And he will, his faith will suffer a lapse, but it will not fail. And he will get up and confess and repent and move on. And so is true with all genuine Christians. In fact, this, this truth, the necessity of perseverance. And think about the logic. It, they're not doing it in their own strength. This isn't work salvation. Jesus has just promised, I'm going to give you the grace. I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to give you the wisdom. I'm going to give you the help. And so God's true children are evidenced by their perseverance through trials in his strength and power. You know, and when we went through the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and, and Titus, we noticed um, five trustworthy sayings that Paul identifies. And, and as best as we can understand, these are early church hymns or doctrinal statements. I want you to listen to some of the truth that the earliest church thought critical to remember. They put them in pithy sayings, and, and, and Paul cites them as faithful or trustworthy. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. What was one of the trustworthy sayings that the early church thought was crucial for its members and its body to remember? This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. They've got to remember that resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we're going to be raised from the dead too, even if we die with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Which is exactly what Jesus says in Luke 12. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men, and I fill in ultimately, final answer, will be denied before the angels of God. So Peter will deny Jesus, but his faith doesn't fail. He's restored. He gets up, and the book of Acts records how he does testify to his faith in Christ. That's not his final answer. So this is tricky. We don't wanna, we're not saying if you ever shrink back, you're not a believer. What we're saying is genuine faith ultimately overcomes. And here's the last point. Perseverance to the end is a necessary and final proof of salvation. Not cause of salvation. Proof of salvation. And I've broken my normal pattern. You may notice that normally in Luke, I just argue from Luke. But I want you to see that this is a broad New Testament teaching. This isn't just something in one verse here. This truth. And we can talk about this some in the ABF. But listen to Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What about those who don't endure to the end? 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they are not of us. A little later in 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born... Everyone, not most, not some, 
Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Or one other passage, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. It's the very first passage I ever taught on in this church, two days after I arrived here. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And listen to verse 14. For we have come, that's past tense, we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He doesn't say, this is where grammar is important, he doesn't say, if you make it to the end, you'll become a Christian. No, in the past, you have come to share in Christ. Jeremy Kidder has come to share in Christ sometime in the past if Jeremy Kidder holds his confidence firm to the end. I want you to turn one last passage to the book of Jude, right before Revelation. You hear all that, and it gets concerning, and you think, so it depends all on me, huh? That sounds an awful lot like work salvation. It doesn't, and it isn't. And I think Jude, the Lord's half-brother, will help us make some sense of this. In his closing doxology, Jude chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to sing about this glorious truth in just a minute. Okay, so if, if and I've just shown you a sampling of some of the New Testament texts, we, we must, we, we will, we have to make it to the end faithful. How, how do we to view that? Jude 1, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen. He is able to keep you from stumbling. And one of the ways he keeps you from stumbling is by Jesus telling you don't stumble. Persevere. Make it to the end. When you and I finish faithfully, it will not be because we gritted our teeth and we worked up the energy and we, by golly, did it. It will be his grace that sustained us. Just as Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Why? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So let me, let me say both sides of this as I call the worship team up for a final song. Jesus says very clearly that only enduring through such hostilities will we ultimately attain to salvation. Only as we prove the genuineness of our faith. And yet, that is a work of God. That where God begins a good work, he sees it through fruition. Where God grants faith, he perpetuates it, feeds it, and strengthens it. Or, to use the language of our closing song, those whom our shepherd calls, he holds fast.